Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dropping by the New York studio, I'm pleased to say is Ibrahim Rakbari, his city's global head of content and G10 FX strategy. Good morning to you, Ibrahim. The main event, Chairman Powell later, what are you looking for? Yes, I think there'll be a lot of focus on uh, the Chairman's comments today. It, I think that he will reinforce his message of the last few weeks mainly, which is confidence in the outlook for the US. But then in there, I think he will say that they'll be watching financial conditions closely, simply not to look too complacent. Does the data back up his optimism and confidence? I think overall it still does in the US. I think we are still uh, at a point where many people saw a few signs of weakness over the last couple of weeks, but they didn't really they didn't really show up in in the data. We still have that big discrepancy between positive momentum in the US and signs of slowdown in the rest of the world. Actually a really an interesting day given the data we've had. We've had a little bit of weakness through China, a bit of weakness through Germany, and looking ahead to the CPI print here in the United States, CPI year on year set to come in at 2.2%. That's backing out food and energy. So the core read, we're on the money, aren't we, for the Fed? Yes, I think we're pretty close to what the Fed wants to see in the medium term. Uh, I think there'll be a lot, of, uh, a lot of focus on some of the details on the shelter side in particular, where we've seen perhaps some concerns that uh, the numbers could be getting softer, but we had a strong print last time around. But the, the, the bigger picture is, I think inflation looks pretty much on target for the Fed. How does this oil collapse of the last month factor into the Federal Reserve's thinking, both for Chairman Powell and for the headline reads that we get from inflation in the United States? I think for now, it's still very early days. That's the way that they will look at it. It, it. it remains to be seen how persistent the price drop will be. And it is still true that in the US, uh, at this stage, the effect on underlying inflation is, is still pretty, uh, pretty limited for these oil price moves. What is best for the President of the United States? If, if we start with the idea that it's a zero-sum uh, attitude, as we've seen, we've got a massive trade discussion between Mr. Cudlow and Dr. Navarro. I think we all understand that, but what's the best outcome for the president given your US team's GDP call? I think for the, for, for, for the president and for the economy here as a whole, I think the best outcome is that we get into a more constructive trade, trading relationship with, with China. And that involves some changes uh, to trade policies, but it probably involves a limit to how much more confrontational the relationship will become. Is there evidence that we're going to see that, or do we have to wait? What, what are the meetings, G20s, when? End of the like, month. End of the, you know, we're getting there. It's like 10 days away, something like that. You know, what, do, what do we want out of those meetings? Yeah, so I, I'm skeptical that we will see a durable uh, truce emerge, but there's room for a, for a temporary one. And what that temporary uh, truce would involve would be some combination of higher U.S., higher imports from the U.S. by the Chinese, some offers of market access in areas that the Chinese are not too worried about, financial mm -hmm. services, electric vehicles, uh, perhaps, <clears throat> and, and that that may push back the date at which the U.S. will raise its tariffs further. Uh, that was scheduled for the 1st of January otherwise. Uh, but that's about the best we can hope for. What's your read on the strength of the Chinese economy? We had a huge amount of data from China overnight. Retail sales relative to expectations, a big downside surprise, a slight pickup in industrial production 
and investment. What's your read on what is happening? Because it looks like a clear deceleration to me. And I agree with you there. I think the overall picture is that the economy is still decelerating in in China. And within there, uh, within that picture, there are two major uh, cross currents. One is the private sector is really the the focus of that down uh, downside momentum, and we see that particularly in the retail sales print overnight. But on the other hand, we are seeing signs of policies come through, and that's what's shown up in uh, the slight pickup in investment and in infrastructure. That's what I think is so important for markets. Anyone cross asset global looking at the situation at the moment you see a slowdown in germany in contraction territory you wonder whether it's temporary you look at the situation in china you see a deceleration you wonder when the stimulus starts to bite just the slightest of turns could change this divergent story that really gathered some pace through the turn of the year do you see that turn that improvement in europe that improvement in china coming anytime soon not yet no i think we will see further divergence uh, on the expectation that I think, again, in China, it'll be some time until we see stability. In Europe, I think the contraction in Germany clearly is temporary. It's driven by what's been happening in the, in the car sector. But the overall story is still of divergence and of the slowdown in Europe. So I only expect right. that turning point to come early next With year. With Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX, what part of Europe X autos is slowing down? Is it a dearth of consumption? Is it investment didn't show up? What factor is leading us to, you know, I'll editorialize here and say eurosclerosis? It's, it's for now investment and exports. So it is driven by a slowdown in the global capex cycle and in uh, an investment, uh, both of which were buoyant last year. So some of that is really just a return to the normal. And the big question is whether the remaining pillar, if you like, that domestic uh, and in particular consumption spending, whether that at least will hold up because that's going to be a necessary condition to get at least the modicum of growth. Uh, but okay, that's the export dynamic. But what about the domestic economies of Europe? Or is, it, is exports just so dominant it overwhelms all? So it's still, uh, it's, investment has also slowed, domestic investment, mm-hmm. but that is in part because the external environment also looks, uh, looks more damaging. Particularly if you look like Germany, the, the uh, consumption picture still looks pretty benign, but historically it's followed uh, investment rather than the other way around. So there are clearly warning signs there too. So you talk about the confidence of Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Is there any confidence for President Mario Draghi going into his final year at the top of the ECB? What underpins it? I think that confidence is, uh, is diminishing, to say the least. We have to keep in mind that the ECB has to some degree deliberately overstimulated. So when it comes to the narrow question of is this the right time to end your QE program, if it's uh, eventually the right time to raise interest rates, I think the bar is relatively low eventually. But they're facing a lot of challenges. I've got to say that, you know, we didn't say this on radio, I said it earlier that your work with Willem Bader was path-breaking on peripheral Europe. And what we all waited for before you went to your FX duties was for you to really write the definitive Rabari essay on how Juventus can't get along with AC Milan. And I still don't get it, John. I look at AC Milan in this uproar of this game with, is it Juventus is how you say it? The game has been for, and gone. For you American listeners, it sounds like days of our lives. I can't keep track of who's going to which team and who's more upset with who. I will say the, tra- it's a soap the, opera. the traditional derby of Italy is not Milan-Juventus. It's Juventus-Inter, um, which is the other side of Milan. And it's not my side of Milan. That's it's not for your sure. side of Milan. No, it's Inter Milan versus Juventus is considered the derby of Italy. 
So what we had over the weekend was a big game, but traditionally not the biggest game. If they fight in soccer, what happens? They get a red card? They get a red card. They, they get don't, suspended they don't for a long time. Box. There, was, there was an amazing thing that happened in the 1990s, in the mid-90s. A French footballer called Eric Cantona, who played for Manchester United, was mm -hmm. abused by a fan. And he jumped into the crowd and karate kicked the fan, I think in the chest. And he got suspended for a long, long time. Right. Proper fights in football aren't really seen like they're seen yeah. in ice hockey. I mean, you yeah. just don't get them in the same way. Okay. As someone but, just said in my ear, they only fake injuries. No, but I, I got to say, and, and everyone knows how upset I am about that, I, I'm not seeing that in Premier League. I mean, when, when you're forcing me to watch these games on Saturday. Can we just be clear? I don't force you anymore. You actually put it on yourself, no, and then you tell me to come upstairs no, and watch just, the game with you. I'm just trying to, you know, keep you happy, but... <laughs> But I, I don't see him doing that. Is I didn't do you, know. Do you I have didn't a know, team. I didn't know Ibrahim was a Juve fan. Yeah. A Juve no, well, fan? though I, I mean, my loyalty is to Bayern Munich, and I had a, a couple of years where I played for my local team in in Düsseldorf, Fortuna Düsseldorf. There we oh, go. okay. Got a professional in the, I got in the room. Michael Barr and I are the only two in the room that have no clue what we're talking about, right, Michael? All the time. These guys, I all have the no time. Clue what I'm talking about. These guys. These guys. Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf, in yes. In the youth, to be fair. My answer is, doesn't Germany have all the best goalies? It just They just own the goalie thing, don't they? We, we've historically done pretty well, but our best one, he's showing some signs of that. Okay. Ibrahim Mubari, thank you so much for our Juventus AC Milan report today. talked about Texas A&M and Rice University Economics. Chris emails in from the West, and Chris says, I'm a Villa fan. Great discussion. <laughs> you see, people like this stuff. I just Can we just get back to people adult like material? This stuff. What's adult material? Hockey? No, Green Bay Packers. That's adult material. That's adult material. Yeah, continue. The Jets losing? Is that adult material? No, that, no. Green Bay Packers. Bring in David Harrow. I'm going to bring in David Harrow. He joins us now. He joins us from Oakmark. Can I just go through some of David Harrow's performances? The, the Oakmark International Fund. Have you seen the performance of this, Tom? The average return, 10.4% yeah. at the end of 2017. Amid the volatility that he lives in every day. One year, great. Next year, not so. Just you know, it's, amazing. It's an amazing. It's a different... 10% that if he was running a domestic portfolio with an R uh, squared of 0.94. See how I did that? That's off of Vila and Argentinian wow. football. We you did R squared. We did some math. Boca okay. River thing in there okay. as well. Thank you. David's thinking what the hell is going on. <clears throat> David Harrow, good morning to you, sir. How are you doing? Good morning, and thank you for stopping my uh, investment performance at the end of 2017. <laughs> and, and by the way, there are, what, six people in this whole viewer audience that knows who Aston Villa are? Oh, thank come you. on, David. Come on. There's at least eight, <laughs> including Mervyn King. <laughs> hey, can, can I can I we here properly? Please do. Okay, David, you're doing international investment. But the shock and awe has <clears throat> been a buoyant American economy. The benchmark of this 
is a claims number in an unemployment labor economy, uh, unemployment rate, that goes back to the day Max McGee caught that pass in the back of the end zone, 1969, Vince Lombardi. Take us back there to the Green Bay Packers then, and this isn't Vince Lombardi's economy, isn't it? It's a lot more service sector. It's not what we used to know or what the president thinks we used to know. No, it's a very strong U.S. economy, and it was finally unleashed. And <clears throat> I would assert after eight years of kind of fearfulness and intrepidation post the global financial crisis, you got these better what Keynes called were animal spirits. Consumers felt better, and, and it's all in the consumer confidence numbers and small business confidence. When you see those numbers become as elevated as they are, that is a feel-good factor, and people act on this feel-good factor. And so I think this is why, whether whatever reason you want to give, but in the last couple years, consumer and business confidence have soared, and as a result, you have more spending, you have more hiring, you have more investing. It's that simple. Great, but you like BMP Paribas. They're in a small bear market, negative 31% from the end of last uh, year. The president going after Mr. Macron, you're an international investor. Is there a Euro malaise or can they find that constructive animal spirit? You know, there tends to be a constant Euro malaise. That doesn't mean you don't invest in Europe because as an investor, you look at the price you're paying for what you're getting. And I think as a result of all these macro factors, European stocks are especially undervalued today. And this gives you an opportunity to buy something that's low priced because of this malaise. They're still growing, they're still healthy, these businesses, despite the fact of this malaise. And this is the opportunity. All these geopolitical events, all this bickering with Italy, all this Brexit talk, all this Macron versus Trump, all this trade, all these trade issues, all brings malaise, but basically the businesses themselves are still doing pretty well. Don't forget, a lot of them export to the United States. And we have an extremely weak euro today, which helps those exporters. So, David, to take a really <clears throat> simple approach to this, if you had the very same company listed in the United <clears throat> States, it would probably get a much better valuation as the very same company if it was just yeah, listed really in Europe. Yeah. Um, there is quite clearly a valuation gap there between very similar <clears throat> companies. And, David, I want to understand the kind of business you want to own. If you can get a better valuation on a European index, fine. But do you want a business that has exposure to the European continent or do you want a business that has exposure to the international story? You really should not be concerned per se on where that company's sales exposure is. Okay. What you should be looking at is are they able to grow their cash flow streams, which means to some degree growing sales, yes, but other things are involved. And what you do want, if possible, is a diversified sales base. But then you have to compare that business performance to the price you're paying for the business. So say you're um, a multinational that's based in Germany, a company like Daimler or BMW. Yes, you're exposed to Germany, but you're also exposed to the United States. You're exposed to the rest of the world. You're heavily exposed to China. And yet, because of the Euro Malay, or maybe because of some trade fears, your multiple is, is selling at a ridiculously low level. The financial service companies in Europe, in particular, are trading at big discounts to their U.S. brethren. 
to some degree, some discount is warranted because the return structure of these companies is a little less than the US. So all else equal, you'd be able to pay a higher price for a higher sustainable return on equity of a financial. But still, I would argue that the gap between the two is just too high. When you can get a BNP Paribas and a Lloyds Bank and a Intesa and a Credit Suisse selling generally well below book value, and they should have normal ROEs in the low double digits, Mr. Market has given you an opportunity to buy quality at a very low price. David, I don't want to use too many cliches and offend you, but I, I will use a couple. There are some people that look at the, the valuation gap and wonder whether it's a valuation trap, and it has looked like that through 2018. What's the catalyst for that valuation gap to actually close? There's The best catalyst for valuation gap closing is earnings performance through time. And if these companies could demonstrate their ability to earn money through time, that valuation gap will uh, close. Right. But the big, the easy ones are, of course, some of these macro issues that have been weighing on the valuations. If some of those get resolved, like well, the Italian budget situation, like Brexit. Yeah, David, we'll talk Asia in our next block with you. But David Harrow, um, Michele Delavargo is with us today from Goldman Sachs, who looks at big oil. And like you, he was huge on the dividend in Europe at the dividend growth, modest but nevertheless tangible, and even share buyback. I mean, what is the culture now in Europe or the marginal change in the culture about use of cash, even greater dividends? The marginal change is certainly better, but it's not optimal. And if you looked at a spectrum and looked at capital allocation proficiency, you'd probably say yeah. US managements and boards are the best and Japanese or Korean are the worst. Europe was somewhere in the middle, but has gotten better. I mean, just take a company like Exor, which is the, uh, well, it was the Agnelli family kind of holding company, right, but right. it's listed. I mean, look at uh, FCA, uh, Fiat Chrysler, and how Mr. Marchione ran that company um, for the shareholders. They allocated capital in a way which led to shareholder yeah. value creation. And if you compare, that capital allocation proficiency um, in Europe versus a U.S. Right. company. It's just not there, but in okay. some instances, it's gotten better. Let's come back. David Harrow with us from Harris Associates from Chicago. Tom Keene in New York and in Washington, but not at our 99.1 FM studios. One Pim Fox. Oh, Pim, where are you? I am attending the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 Summit meeting. Now, this is taking place at the Intercontinental Hotel on the Wharf. Now, if you're not familiar with the Wharf, then you haven't been to Washington in the last year because the Wharf is part of a multi-year, multi I don't know, 100,000 yeah. square foot development, <clears throat> all in the uh, southwest of of Washington, D.C. I'd say it's where the brokers keep their yachts, but it's really where the lobbyists keep their yachts, right? You know what? I, I'm not going to look at the names on the yachts because it would give <laughs> it all away. But this was the big commercial waterfront like all the way back in the yeah. 1820s, 1830s fell into disuse and disrepair and so on. But now we have just first the anniversary, it just yeah. opened a year ago, two and a half billion dollars <clears throat> right. worth, 
new office space, condos, apartments, yeah. retail, a new yacht club for you, Tom. Uh, and that is appropriate because our next guest knows a thing or two about real estate. Toby Moskowitz is the president and the founder of the real estate investment firm Heritage Equity Partners. And he joins us now. Uh, Toby, thanks for being be, being with us. It's, Good morning. Uh, Thank you for having me. You know, it's it's a it's when you come to a new development like this and you see what it does to the not just to the specific area that's being redeveloped, but to the entire community. I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit about your work in Brooklyn, because you designed a hotel in Bushwick. And I confess, when I heard the prices of apartments in Bushwick, as someone that grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, I was floored. I couldn't believe this was the same Brooklyn. Tell us about the hotel and about what you're doing. Sure. So um, I'm a Brooklyn girl born and bred, um, first-generation American. My dad actually had a business on the Williamsburg waterfront in the 70s and 80s. Um, and in 2009, when everybody started running for the hills, um, I found myself back in a neighborhood where I grew up and really the world had stopped. There was very little financing. Um, I was new to real estate, but recognized a great neighborhood, a great opportunity, and was one of the first developers after the crash to start buying stalled residential projects and uh, building up a residential portfolio. And then ultimately, when others came into the market and pricing started to go up in residential development deals, I shifted <laughs> gears and began to focus on what today we call the White Avenue waterfront. Uh, which is Kent and White between North 10th and Greenpoint. Um, and there was one of the first developers to build a hotel, the Williamsburg Hotel, and uh, as well a project that we call 25 Kent Avenue, which is the first speculative office development to be built in Brooklyn since the 1940s. Um, and it's going to be home new construction to tech office companies in Williamsburg. Well, this is an appropriate time then because of Amazon's announcement that they have selected two areas. Uh, I can almost see one of the areas here, the Crystal City location in Arlington, Virginia, and then, of course, uh, Long Island City uh, in Queens, New York. Can you give us some idea of comparative rents on a commercial basis so that listeners understand sort of what the dynamics are? between different areas? Sure. So the tenants that would come to our building in 25 Kent, and then I'll, I'll comment on Amazon as well, uh, many of them are working in and around Google's headquarters um, and that part of, of what the, we call Midtown South, where they might be paying 90 to $100 a square foot rent. Uh, an equivalent building in the outer boroughs, new construction would be um, in the 70s to 80s. Uh, the decision of Amazon to move into Long Island City, I think, is significant for the city of New York and specifically for Brooklyn because what it does is it creates a connection point between the east side of Manhattan um, into Greenpoint and Williamsburg. Long Island City is technically in Queens but is really that, that space and that place that runs outside of the Midtown Tunnel into Greenpoint. Um, and I think it's going to be a huge boon certainly <coughs> for the continued yeah. growth of residential and it's also for commercial. Okay, but I want to talk about the real world here. I mean, you're, you're doing lofty commercial stuff at that. I'm looking, just for example, I don't live in Long Island City. 25,000 people are going to parachute in. They're going to make 150,000 large a year, a lot more than that. And they're going to be in Kew Gardens, which is it's just south of Forest Hills, where they used to play the U.S. Open. And I'm going to get in my car and go up Route 678. Then I'm going to take 495 to 278 and finally get to Long Island City after what? 
a 45-minute commute, this is going to work to add all those new people? So what I believe is that the way to solve the housing crisis in this city is to bring commercial jobs into okay, deeper fine. into neighborhoods. Is so, Mr. Bezos doing that? So he may not be, but a lot of people like myself, developers and other larger developers, most of the, the Alganians related, they've built right. thousands and thousands of apartments in Long Island City. And I think the idea is to continue to bring the, the live-work balance affected by having people work closer to where they live. That's the vision behind 25 Kent, trying to alleviate some of the pressure on the L train. Um, you know, I've heard it said that we have a reverse mm. commute that is a full, fully active train system. Could you imagine that all those people okay. traveling? You breathe Brooklyn. I mean, you. I mean, it's great to have Arthur Levin. You know, I live, in, I live another, in Queens, but I still Queens, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, whatever. <laughs> you look. Come on, you're the I'm real deal. What, I, what do I know? I'm a tourist. Okay, is, is Jeff Bezos going to bring to you wall-to-wall -wall plaid shirts and pork pie hats? That's what this comes down to. How hipster is Queens and Brooklyn, Brooklyn already, but how hipster is all this going to become? So I, I run a great program in Williamsburg at something called the High School for Architecture and Design, and it's a high school where the kids learn CAD, computer-aided design. Yeah. And I could think modestly myself and the other architects that we've had participate in this program has really, we've, ha we've changed the lives of kids growing up in the projects by exposing <coughs> them to new industries, real estate development, product design. I believe that Amazon will help really accelerate the pace of tech ecosystems that are being built in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, and in Queens that are really have an opportunity if we give the these young people- things that are people, tangential that really need help. Well, the, no housing is affordable without a job. So giving okay. kids access to- I like that. Uh, yeah. you know, pathways to prosperity. So I think I call on Jeff Bezos to make sure that in yeah. the neighborhoods that he touches in Queens, well, Queensbridge, there's okay. a huge number of projects that he figures out I, how to get these kids jobs. Tim, I call on you to get me from Bushwick to Forest Hills. Not, not a problem. I will, I will take you there. Maybe we, I might even leave you somewhere on Queens Boulevard just hailing a taxi. But, Toby, uh, <laughs> one of the things I want to just offer you the chance to do is, and Tom raises a very uh, salient point, which is this idea of what developments <clears throat> do to existing neighborhoods. But is it also worth expressing their... Doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a viable alternative. So you've got to make what is existing work either better, more efficient, and it's one thing to have a, you know, a, a pie in the sky kind of, oh, we're going to do this for housing, this for, but the reality is it's the businesses. Without a big coherent government plan, it's the businesses that really make this work in partnership with the community. I think you're right. A perfect example is that if you haven't been to Williamsburg recently, you should go check out Domino Park, which is a privately funded park on the waterfront, right. and then go look at the city-owned parks and look at the difference. I think that, and I'm, I'm available tomorrow morning, by the way, if you can somehow manage to get Bezos to come back, I'll tell him a little bit about what Brooklyn needs, a little bit about what Queens needs, yeah. and I think that it's incumbent upon businesses like Amazon coming into New York to figure out how to really open their doors and create right. local employment. And that leads okay. to other opportunities. 30 seconds is all I got. What should be the approach of the mayor of New York City to this seismic investment in tax incentive with Amazon? I think there needs to be a requirement for local hiring. There needs to be a requirement for local job training. Um, there are kids that are living literally across the street from where they're coming. Who should be part of this new calculus. Absolutely. There should be a requirement that 30% of Amazon's new employees 
take on okay. service mentors. And that will open up doors of opportunity yeah. to kids that today don't okay. have access to these kinds of jobs. Toby, thank you so much. Toby Moskowitz with us uh, here at Bloomberg in an important seminar, Heritage Equity Partners uh, today. We begin really our retail and holiday coverage with no one better than Dana Telsey of Telsey Advisory Group. Retail and all of this consumption that we do is in absolutely the fabric of her family and she has staked out a wonderful career in looking at its ups and downs. Linda, I was in, uh, or rather I should say Dana, I was in your Bergdorf Goodman yesterday and I accidentally got off on the wrong floor and there was Linda's at Bergdorf, Linda Fargo's personally curated shop. And like Tiffany, it seems like everybody's trying to change to create excitement. Is that the theme this year? That is the theme. Anything where you can feel it's personalized, yeah. localized, excitement, something <clears throat> new and different that's curated for you is what ho the holiday season's going to be about. It's not just the experience of buying. It's the activity of doing, too. So buying married with doing is what makes the experience special. Great. Is it making money? I mean, I get that it's a vogue, but so is AI or nanotechnology 10 years ago. Is all this stuff going to make revenue and margin happen or not? I think it will do a little bit of both over time, but there's a service component of learning how to get there. What we're seeing, though, is inventory levels are lean. The consumer's in good shape. We should have a solid Christmas okay. season for 2018. Right. Pim, let me editorialize here that there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a winter coat company from Europe. starts with an M. Yeah, Montclair. They Go have, ahead. They have no coats in North America. Just so, as Dana said, inventory's lean. It's not lean, Pim. There are no winter coats. The women of the Keene family are freezing as we speak. Well, I thought the reason they were lean is because no one has any money left over after buying their Montclair coat. They can't <laughs> afford anything else. Dana Telsey, is Tom Keene going to be seen in an Under Armour, Adidas, or Adidas, or Nike outfit this holiday season? I understand that athletic apparel and activewear, that's going to be where we're going to see some big gains. We've been seeing big gains in athletic and activewear apparel, and I think we're going to continue to see those gains. One of the newest things that's happening is we're having an apparel revival for women beyond just active and athletic. All of a sudden, denim jeans are resonating. We're seeing newness in the handbag category, some newness in the footwear category. And it doesn't hurt that we're getting a little bit of cold weather now. So we sell not just Montclair, but take a look at those Canada Goose numbers today. Those are sp pretty special also. See the Canada Goose numbers, Tom. Yeah, All right. Help, help Mr. Keene a little bit. Um, tell us about the beauty sector because, boy, if there is not something that the Internet has helped to push even further yeah. into the household, it is I, the beauty Okay, industry. Let me translate that. Dana, have you been in the new Glossier store yet downtown? I have, and I've seen <laughs> the lines. I've been there in New York and in Los Angeles. Tell people about this, Dana. I think what, the way I think of Glossier is more affordable cos, a cosmetic line that basically is very interactive, that the packaging is cool, that is, has influencer 
recognition and it's attracting, frankly, women of all ages, but they certainly yeah. have that millennial bent. And Dana, my daughter, afterthought, it, it's like the whole bedroom is glossier. I just want to point out, Pim, that the oversized laminated jersey jogging pant by Gucci is $1,380. Yeah. It's sort of like a Celtic screen, but not with a price tag. It's like rich. Dana, I mean, within all this is consumption, and I get the idea of a struggling America and dollar stores and Walmart and all that and the luxury stuff we like to talk about. Is there a middle in the Dana Telsey world anymore? There is a middle in the Dana Telsey world. Take a look at Macy's numbers today. Those are good numbers. A 3.1% comp store sales increase. Their average unit retail price up just around 3%. The improved trends in traffic that they've been seeing in brick and mortar. And the fact that October was the strongest month of the quarter. There you go. There's the middle. And let's not forget off-price. Burlington, Ross, and TJ, it's a destination. You see traffic gains. It's outside of the mall. We've been seeing whether it's the off-pricers. Look what you just saw at Macy's. It should kick off good numbers for the department store season. Look what you saw at Ulta. They just reported their same-store sales last week for the quarter. That was encouraging. So we are seeing some better results, but only because there's product innovation and consumer has the power to buy. Just quickly, Dana, are there going to be more electronics in the Keene household in 2019? There will be. I don't know if you visited the Amazon four-star store downtown, but guess what? Drones are one of the biggest selling items, so you'll have to get your drone for the holiday. Well, he can launch it from the window, right? He can just launch it out over... I can can launch it out over Central Park. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and they'll they'll take it down by the Glossier store. Well, you can can supervise the dog. Yeah. Dana, what's your single best buy at Telsey Advisor Group? What is the one equity where we could make alpha to pay for my Gucci jogging pants, $1,380? Where am I going to make money? PVH, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, clean valuation, global distribution, okay. all channels, clean inventory. Feels good. Right. Dana, every time I'm on the first floor of Bergdorf for those lovely new windows they've blown out showing uh, the best of Fifth Avenue and the plaza, love uh, what you do. Dana Telsey, thank you so much for being with us at Telsey Advisor Group. Great clarity from Alan Greenspan is not the obligatory one volume after being chairman of the Federal Reserve. That is an easy thing to do. But genuinely establishing a writing career after his chairmanship, including a wonderful new book out. It's a new book on caution. Here is Chairman Greenspan on inflation. I think I'm beginning to see the first signs of it. We're seeing it basically in the tightening of the labor markets first which, as you know, are getting very tight now. We're beginning finally to see uh, average wages rise. And uh, clearly, there's no productivity behind it. Chairman Greenspan uh, with David Rubenstein. And, of course, we bring in David Rubenstein now. His his wonderful set of interviews he's had. David, what I find so important about this book is uh, someone of his vintage, 92 years old, celebrating 93 years old in March, will go out and he'll get a co-writer. And then he went out and got the rock star, Adrian Wildridge, 
uh, of The Economist magazine, writing Schumpeter and Lexington and um, all that for The Economist. I mean, what a great co-write to capitalism in America, Alan Greenspan and Adrian Woolbridge. Yes, I highly recommend the book. Um, it's a pretty good history of capitalism in America. And the main point really is that American capitalism is, is what he calls this um, creative destruction, which is to say re- repeatedly reinventing itself. And um, he's concerned that now the reinvention is not occurring quite as much as maybe before, perhaps because uh, the enormous debt is crowding out entrepreneurial yeah. capitalism, perhaps because there's too much consolidation in the, in the tech sector. But for whatever reason, he's worried about the current U.S. economy. Right. He uses in Chapter 12 a word that I associate with David Rubenstein, and frankly, it comes from the Laureate of Columbia, Ned Phelps, dynamism. How does David Rubenstein define dynamism, and particularly through the career of Alan Greenspan? Well, Alan has had a number of careers. As he mentioned, he started out thinking he would be a professional musician, but he was playing against a 15-year-old Stan Getz and realized that Stan Getz was probably really great and Alan was not going to be as great. So he went into economics um, and uh, became a public servant. He hadn't really expected to become the head of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Ford, but he did. And then later, for almost 19 years, I guess he was uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. A distinguished career. Um, and now at, at 92 and a half, he's writing books. This is, I think, his third book since he's left the Fed chairmanship. His mind is as sharp as ever, and he is very concerned about the amount of debt we have and entitlements we have in our U.S. federal system. Uh, David Rubenstein, I'm wondering if you could just expand on that, having to do with rising deficits and increases to debt, and whether the most recent tax cuts are a focus of his attention. Yes, the most recent tax cut, he wouldn't say uh, tax cuts are bad. He supported tax cuts. He supported George W. Bush's tax cut, uh, when that was actually probably even larger in some respects. But he thinks that tax cuts have to be balanced with spending cuts. And if you don't get spending cuts, you have to make sure that the tax cut is really going to produce much more revenue. He's not yet convinced that this tax cut will produce the necessary revenue to offset the uh, loss in revenue from the tax cut. And he doesn't see gains now in uh, productivity, doesn't see cuts in spending. So he's quite worried, as we all probably remember, in the early 80s, 1983, he chaired a commission to help uh, rein in uh, the problems that Social Security had. And now we have that problem again. Social Security and the other entitlement programs we have are really ballooning the federal budget. Well, as, as someone who has been incredibly successful uh, in business and building businesses throughout the world, David Rubenstein, and getting to speak with all of these luminaries, if everyone agrees that there is no political will to cut spending, do you see that it is kind of a false promise to offer tax cuts as a way to increase revenue when basically all the work shows that maybe 30% of the tax cut is made up by increased revenue, but nothing else? Well, there's no doubt that uh, those people who like tax cuts believe that uh, they will ultimately produce greater revenue by increasing the GDP. And there's no doubt as well that the GDP seems to be going up, uh, perhaps because of the the most recent tax cut, perhaps other reasons. Whatever the case, we now have, as Alan Greenspan pointed out, a deficit that's going to be, uh, for FY19, about $1.3 trillion dollars. The FY18 budget deficit was about $800 billion. We now have $21 trillion 
of federal debt. When I was in the White House and we left at the end of the Carter administration, uh, we had about $700 billion of total indebtedness. So we're now in, uh, you know, measuring yeah. our debt by trillion-dollar increases every year, and at some point, somebody's going to have to pay for this. That's right where I wanted to go, David, your public service with, with Jimmy Carter, and then on we go to the Conquer Coalition, Paul Sangas, and Pete Peterson, dearly missed, and here Chairman Greenspan. Are these guys ever going to win the day? Are the deficit hawks or the deficit worriers, are they ever going to get traction? Well, I suspect they will when there is a collapse in the financial markets. And at some point, I don't know when, but I suspect at some point the financial markets will say the debt is out of control and we have to do something about it. Right now, and really for the last 10 years or so, that hasn't been a concern of most investors. At some point, I suspect that the uh, uh, the concern will come home to roost, but I don't know exactly when, and nor does Alan Greenspan. The, uh, David Grubenstein, does that speak to what uh, Chairman Greenspan talks about when he speaks about government regulation, and does that get connected to moral hazard, that if we reach that point, things are just too big to fail, so the government has to bail out everybody anyway? Well, we didn't quite address that, but, but he is, his concern is that there doesn't seem to be a, an interest right now in reining in spending and in, and in uh, dealing with some of the concerns that he sees in the economy. As we probably all know, he's a big uh, fan of seeing productivity increases. And without productivity increases, in the end, uh, you really can't get your economy moving forward in a productive way. And right now, he doesn't see any productivity increases in the U.S. economy. David Rubenstein, uh, I'm broadcasting uh, from the wharf at the Intercontinental in Washington, D.C. Of course, you know it well, this major redevelopment right. of, the, of the waterfront. But this was something that was really a partnership between a lot of private money and a lot of effort on the part of uh, local uh, and community. Can you speak to how that might be a model for solving some of these issues since there seems to be such gridlock at the federal level? Well, uh, one example would be infrastructure. Um, infrastructure is something like, like the weather that everybody likes to talk about, but not a lot is getting done. I do think that infrastructure is necessary to, uh, for, to be improved in the United States, and I, I do think that you're going to see more of that uh, get done, but it's really going to require the private sector working with the public sector. Congress probably is not going to pass a major, major infrastructure bill um, this year or next, though I hope it will. Uh, but it's moved very slowly on that. President Obama couldn't get an infrastructure bill of consequence through, and President Trump has not yet either. Hopefully that will change. But in the meantime, the private sector is moving forward to work with various parts of the, of the government, not necessarily the federal government, to bring infrastructure reform and infrastructure uh, improvements uh, to the fore. David, as always, thank you. The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. Looking forward to that, a conversation with a former chairman, of the Federal Reserve System, Alan Greenspan, out with a new book, Capitalism in America. On Bloomberg TV, Wednesday at uh, 9 p.m., and uh, moving across to radio Thursday at 5 p.m. Uh, as well. Looking forward uh, to that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.